you know, every now and then, I think you might like to hear something from us. Nice. Easy. But there's just one thing. You see, we never, ever do nothing.
Hello, this is Indigo Radio, a project of the Spark Teacher Education Institute. We are a group of educators seeking to deepen our understanding and make connections through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can find more information about Spark and Indigo Radio on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to our weekly shows wherever you get your podcasts. We are on the air Sundays at noon and Mondays at 2 p.m. on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guest, not the radio station. Today we're taking a look at Tina Turner's life, a tribute to Tina through her music. Tina Turner was actually the first black person and first woman on the cover of Rolling Stones. And she's had an amazing life, and we'd like to take a little bit, a deeper dive into her life. The first song that you heard was Proud Mary. And we're going to turn next to a song called River Deep, Mountain High. This was produced in 1966. Although this song was credited to the duo Ike and Tina Turner, which was really the beginning to her musical career, the producer didn't want Ike in the studio due to the fact that he was controlling. And Tina was really, you know, was recorded as being really happy to work with a full assembly of orchestra and choir. She said, I was just a girl from Tennessee who got caught up with Ike and became a singer. Never, ever had I seen anything like this except in the movies. This record was actually number three in the UK, but it didn't even hit the charts in the US. This was due to the fact that radio DJs said it wasn't black enough, in quotes, to be rhythm and blues or white enough to be pop. And it was interesting, I actually watched an interview on Larry King where he was asking Tina why she lived in Europe, why she didn't live in the U.S. anymore. And she said, in Europe, I was as famous as Madonna and the Rolling Stones. I would never have been able to be that in the U.S., Let's listen now to River Deep Mountain. When I was a little girl, I had a rag Only doll I've ever owned. Now I love you just the way I love that rag doll. But only now my love has grown. And it gets
You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM. That was River Deep Mountain High. And we are spending the hour looking at Tina Turner's life through her music. The next song we're going to look at, Nutbush City Limits from 1973. This is a song about Tina's hometown in Tennessee. And actually, some interesting information that I learned that Tina Turner is not her real name. She was born Anna May Bullock. And actually, um, she her name was changed without her knowledge by Ike Turner, who when one of her first songs was published, all of a sudden it was published by or produced or sung by Tina Turner. And that was how she found out her name had changed. And she actually had to fight to keep that name change after they were divorced um, because Ike thought he had ownership over the name and maybe could easily replace one singer for another under the same name. But Tina Turner kept her name and that is how she is known today. Here is Nutbush City Limits.
Nutbush City Limits. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM. The life of Tina Turner through her music. We're going now to a song that maybe is one of her most famous. What's love got to do with it? And this is a transition in Tina Turner's life. At the end of her marriage with Ike Turner, after very years of violence um, and that was now public to the world in 1984 when this song was published. Tina launched a new triumphant phase of her career with this What's Love Got to Do With Thank you for making this next one number one.
Welcome back. This is Indigo Radio. We turn now to Tina in her own words, an interview with CBS News from 1984. The song, What's Love Got to Do With It? It talks about a distrust of emotion, a distrust of love, having those feelings. Does that at all reflect how you feel about it? No. Uh, in my case, love has a lot to do with it. I'm sorry. <laughs> but with the world today, I mean, everything is very fast. And women have changed, and, and men have has changed as well. So I think the song sort of really fit a lot of liberated girls. I mean, they're feeling like, yeah, that's right, Tina. What does love have to do with it anyway? And I'm going, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it means. Oh, okay. You know, but... Uh, in my case, I'm, I'm more of a one that I think love has everything to do with everything. Are you uh, quick to adjust? In, in, in you gave us an example with the way you feel about that lyric. But in general, are you quick to adjust musically, personally, in any way? Yes, I, the years of my life, I would say the 20 years of uh, the 22, three uh, years of working as an entertainer, I became, I become extremely disciplined and to adjust immediately to any surroundings and can let people go very easily now that it's worked for me for years. I, I really have learned not to cling, not to hold on, to let go. And so that means adjustment is very easy to, if anything is switched or changed, I can just fit right into it without frustration. That has um, a downside though as well, doesn't it? Mm. Well, you know, getting adjusted to the change has a lot because you're already locked into uh, whatever previous adjustments or experiences you're going through and then to make that change of course you know that's the human side you just gotta just can't switch off and turn on if so and we would have our lives totally in control but that that can be depressing sometimes a bit you know for a moment or for two but it's I'm just a sort of very optimistic person I think and I'm not very moody a very person that hold on to depression and so forth so I I'm pretty uh, how do you call uh, flexible and open and uh, I, I'm not depressed a lot. I'm almost uh, always happy person. Except I have my moments, but I don't deal with them very long. I'll go in and cry it out, scream it out, and then I'm done with it. I just refuse to walk around in depression. So uh. You are on a third or fourth wave of success. Is there some sweet vindication about this particular point in your life? You have proved to the naysayers in the record industry who like to believe there's no rock and roll over 40. Yes. Proved that <laughs> Isn't that great? You proved that. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about that? Must I, had, I had a real hard time because I'm black. In America, radio programmers don't program you, you as a black person, rock and roll. You are and be because of your color. You are, that is something that has been and people are not uh, uh, aware of. Prince just bombarded his way through there. He just said, I am and you will accept me. Of course, he had to make some changes like as a guy. But I, I had to prove it over the years. You know, at, this is the, the part coming in of like being a woman and being black. I've been rock and roll all my life. I have stood with the rock and roll guys and still they say, they, the radio programmer, said, no, we cannot program her. She's, 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 she's R&B. Because she's black. Because I'm black. You have to go crossover R&B before you can make rock and roll. But I reversed it on them. My audience, the people, 
proclaimed me rock and roll, and so it was just forced. So it didn't matter what the radio stations were saying or were playing. It was selling pop. Everyone was buying it. It was just gone. That is how I, my claim to fame was through my audience, through my work, through my persistence, because I was, I am. I have never even felt the urge to do, say, pop or, or jazz, or I'm just a wild person. You know, it's controllably wild, <laughs> my attitude about it, but that is my soul. And so the comeback is like to say to all those people, not, not with blame, but just to say, wake up, accept talent, accept people, not for the color, but for what they do. Europe is very much that way, so I can relate to the European people more so than like the American structure of doing things but it is America and I do live with it and I accept it and it's all right but now I feel that I've won over them because it's like saying you knew it all the time you just didn't want to give that to me but the public gave it to me so yes that that's a sweetness it's like and also the sweetness is that I did it and what I did seven years was without a record I bought a home I furnished it I bought a car I've paid for it all of that was before the record. So now that I have the record, I'll go out and do all kinds of things. <laughs> I did so much on my very own for eight years without a record, without proper management, just almost doing it on my own sweat and blood and, you know. Have you surprised yourself over the last seven or eight years the first, having to be independent? Yes. The first surprise was I was forced to go into uh, a date that I was trying to cancel because I wasn't prepared. I didn't have a band. I came back from a tour, didn't have a band, starting new management, and they wouldn't let me cancel. So I had to get a band together, I had to get the costumes together, and I had to alter a show for the Fairmont Club in San Francisco. And all of that had to be done in two weeks and on stage. I did it. I did it. I didn't have a manager there with me because he's a manager of Olivia Newton-John as well, and he was just like overly booked. And I went and pulled out old costume, costumes, changed my hairstyle, dressed the girls, dressed up basically 17, uh, 17 people involved, and karate. I went out and just bought karate suits for the guys. That was easy. That had a look about it, you know? <laughs> and it worked. Just the simplicity of just quick moves like that made, and I got on stage and the reviews were fantastic. I surprised myself. And I had to do it once again, and I was always worried that I would top myself. Each time I top myself, even with this show here, I didn't have a producer. I didn't have someone to help me do the dressing of the band. It was like, Lionel Richie wants you to work with him, stepping right out of Europe. Each time I keep topping myself, and I don't know why, I don't know yet that I can, but I think that if I knew I could, I'd mess up. <laughs> you know, I think somehow <laughs> that if I really knew that I was going to be successful at it, I, it wouldn't be as successful, but it's working, and each time, it is a surprise. Not a surprise, surprise, the surprise is, I did it. It's like, oh, all right. You know, it's not like running, yelling, and screaming. It's like holding the press, holding the, the interviewer's article there saying, I, I did it. Is there any prejudice in the music business toward a woman who's over 40? Um, now, this might sound egotistical, but I really don't mean it that way. Um, I'm not threatened because I find myself attractive, I'm healthy, and I'm talented. I can stand with anyone, no matter the color, and no matter the power of who, like say, example, if it was the 
the daughter of the kings of Europe. I'm talented and I'm attractive and that's what you need for performance. When people come to see a show, they want great costumes. They want to look at something that looks good. It's, it's very hard when you are not attractive. I've had unattractive eye-cats years, and people have come and say, why don't you get rid of those girls? They're horrible. And I realize, so looks is almost a priority. So wh how I value myself is that I am blessed and fortunate to be attractive. Now, I didn't say I was beautiful. I said I'm attractive, and, I, and that's something that I know, and I know how to be attractive. I know how to bring out the better sides of myself visually, and I'm talented. And I don't try to be anybody else. Now, if you stick me with a jazz person, I'm not going to become jazz. I'm going to stay what I am because I'm good at that, and people accept me for that, and I win with that. And so it's two things that I would have to say that I, w I don't relate to it as people being prejudiced. They can't be prejudiced to me because I am talented and I am good at what I do. And you'll never lose when, when you have that security there. I'm sure there could be with some people, and I'm sure there has been in my case, but I didn't relate to it because I don't even leave myself open for that thought, is that I didn't get that because, just because I was black. There is a problem with black people, black women, getting roles because there are no acting parts for black women. So I said, all right, I understand that. That's how it is right now. But I'll wait. And now look at the movies that's coming. Conan, uh, the Road Warrior stuff. They're people with no color. They looked all kinds of ways. And you didn't know whether they were black or whether they were Indians or what they are. They are goons from another time. <laughs> Animals and things are in movies now <laughs> talking their languages so you can be black and be it. I didn't hold a grudge. I just said, all right, I can understand the white race rules. They're leading. Black people wouldn't fit that part anyway because they couldn't do that because they're not fitting in with what is going on. I was no fool about it, you know. I didn't say, oh, they're just totally discriminating and blah, 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 blah. I watched the black movies when they were out and I didn't like a lot of things that I saw. I just, it wasn't a, a good production done of the good black movies at the time and I didn't want to be a part of it and I wasn't. I could see why they didn't put a lot of us in their productions. There, your, how you look, how you are. There is a difference in us. So I just decided, fine. When I played the role as Acid Queen, that wasn't a color. You didn't care whether she was green, purple, blue, black, yellow, or whatever. She that's a great been. part. Yes, that's what I meant. That is why I say I had to wait, because you couldn't stick me in a white movie, and I would stand out as being black. I didn't want to stand out as being a color. I wanted to stand out as being a character. So my attitude about that was... I accepted it because I could see that it was right and what it is that they were saying. I might get, a lot of people might come down on me for it, but I face reality. I look at things like how it really is. What is the truth, you know? What is not the truth is, what is the truth is that we, there are a lot of us that are great with little help. We are, are better singers, are better dancers than people in the white race. But there are some great actresses and actors as well, but we have to be properly produced and directed. And the time is coming for that now because a lot of actresses are now turning to producing. And then it will come and then it will be right. But there's no need to jump in the gun. And you people don't jump the gun. I look at things how it is and I don't put blame. That's my attitude about life, you know. I don't care who want to put me down for it. It's mean, at this stage of my life, I am how I am and I'm saved by it and I have no stress. And I'm wonderful. Do you know what I mean? You just don't let things that make sense get you down. Feel that there's something I have to do. Mm. And I waited for it. I knew that I was here for more. 
because I was, I was holding on and I was knowing things, the right moves to make. Like I was talking earlier to someone, uh, I know he's not ready yet, but he said, she said, don't you feel sometimes that the younger crowd would, you know, smirk you or whatever. Mm. And I was saying no, because I was always one step ahead, like right after the disco music went out, I sort of went into the, a look of the uh, Quest for Fire, and I didn't even, hadn't even seen the movie. And then all of a sudden, there I was with the hair and the, the skin dress, mm -hmm. and I went, and it was just perfect. The kids loved it. So I've always, I know things. You know, I know things about myself, and I know, I feel how I want to look and what I like, and immediately I can hear a song and I can say, I'm going to do that, I'm going to take that, I'm going to make it mine, this is what I'm going to do with it. And I just know. It's good and for you. Yes, mm. it's, I know what's good for me and what makes me sustain myself with the younger kids. They don't care that I'm older. They like what I'm doing and they don't even look at age. It's my older peers that are saying, she's 50, how does she do it? They're the one that's worried about it. The mm. kids don't even care. They just like what I'm doing. You know? Excuse me, we're ready. Are you ready? Oh, ready. Oh, were you running? <coughs> oh, good. <laughs> oh, okay, great. <coughs> I think that's true. I think it is. The, uh, contemporary will be, because what they're doing is saying, why could I not have kept current? Yes. Why could I not have yes. kept pace you know as why? she did? And where did I fall behind and she didn't? And so it's an enviable yes. role to be in. But, they, but what it happens, I think it's jealousy. Yeah. Uh, Nancy told me that. She says, I was saying, what is wrong with people? What is this thing that... They're, they're saying things like, uh, oh, doesn't she look great for 50? Or everything with Tina Turner today is her age first. Why? I mean, God, I'm not an 80-year-old woman. <laughs> A 40-year-old woman today, 40, early 40s, is not an old coot. It used to be in my mother's age, my mother's days. But what happens also with society is that when you get a, a certain age, all of a sudden they feel like they have to become conventional and conservative. And they start buying older clothes and doing the hair older and becoming old. I didn't do it and I'm not going to do it until I have to. I'm just not going to do it. I know the difference. I have those clothes there. I know when to put them on. I don't do it until I have to. I know when. No. Forget it. I know. You know what I mean? It's no because I know how I look there. I know a wrong pair of shoes can make a pair of slacks look horrible. Mm -hmm. I know things like that, and I just will not do it. I don't care how old I am. However, I'm also aware of the fact I'm not going to look like that young teenager and turn around and have this mm -hmm. old monster face. <laughs> you know, you stay, I know things about things like that. You just stay right on the borderline when you're our age. You don't have to become. You don't. You'll get a lot of buffs and beats from the high society people going, oh, she's trying to be young, but that has to be jealousy, if you're right. If you follow through on everything from head to toe, all they can say is that you look great and talk about you behind your back and love every minute of it and try to do it themselves, you know? But the only part about me is that I'm more visual and they're becoming, they're making announcements for me. They don't even know me and they're making the announcements, so it has to be a form of jealousy, you know? But all I can say is like, forget it. Fine, that's right, that's exactly, I'm no, I'm not, they're giving me 10 years. And I, I don't want that because for the crowd that I'm drawing, Say, if you had a kid, not that much of a kid, a teenager, they wouldn't want to come and hear a 50-year-old woman sing rock and roll. That's an automatic turn off because they're relating to their mother. Do you know what I mean? So they think, mother on stage at 50. And then when they come to see Tina Turner, it's like they are shocked because they said, well, my mother said, or my mother is, you can't relate me to your mothers. That's going to be my next thing. I am not sure I'm a mother. My kids grew up, and my kids and I are friends. And that is what my whole attitude is. I'll change when it's time. When I start getting the lines and I look in the mirror, then I'll know that, okay, but I'm going to do it gradually. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take 
it. I'm not going to let it take me. And how I can is because I can, because I don't age. And I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I don't age. No, incredibly, you don't. It's whatever you eat, write down. Let's write, write down, down what <laughs> Tina eats for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, how, to what degree uh, was Mick Jagger instrumental in part of your comeback, in part of your renewed yeah. success? Right. I'd love to sing Mick Jagger's style. If I had Mick Jagger's hits, I think I would be beaming. I'm very, very happy and very pleased with my success. But I would love to do their music. And if I inspired him to dance, his music has inspired me to become even more rock and roll. That in the beginning of me becoming what I am is the first time I walked in a shop and heard Honky Tonk Woman. It was like, I want to do that. And I literally begged, I please do this song. You know, I got to do this song. It wasn't a choice of his. Come together and Honky Tonk Woman at that time was not a choice of Ike's. It was a choice of mine and Proud Mary to do on stage. That was me finding out what I really wanted to sing, you know, all before it was Ike with Otis Redding tunes and a lot of the Wilson Pickett tunes and a lot of, you know, the Ray Charles tunes. My choice was the rock and roll people. And so I, and when I get the chance publicly, I'm going to thank people like Rod Stewart, Rolling Stones for keeping me alive by making it possible for me to work with them to let people still see that I am here, I am very much alive. And that is what did help. When my record finally came out, people knew my name. They knew, oh, I saw her with Rod Stewart. She was great with Rod Stewart, or she was great with the Stones. They did help me, and their music, because that's what I really want to do. But they write their own music, and I'm not writing at the, at the moment. I will. That's my next uh, sort of homework, too, is sort of getting into trying to find out. But you see, I had sadness in my life, and those guys, cut up all the time, so they write about their fun, you know? Well, I didn't have that kind of fun, you know? So I have to find a way to dream that and to make that a reality to be able to write it about what I'm doing. And then I'll be fine. I'm glad you're going to write. That's, that's important for you yeah. to do. Yeah. yeah, I did in the beginning, but it, was, mm. it wasn't right. It was just about, I was closed in, and I was writing about where I was. And so now I, I'm having fun. I can start writing about that. I just have to put it down properly, you know? So. I have to look look forward for that. I do too. <laughs> Don't we all? That's good. Okay. Mm. Welcome back. This is Indigo Radio on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM. And we are spending the hour talking about Tina Turner. You just heard a interview with her from 1984. We'll turn now to Private Dancer, a song released that same year. Tina later said in an interview that she hadn't realized the song was about a sex worker. I never had to stoop to that in my life, she wrote. But I think most of us have been in situations where we had to sell ourselves one way or another. When I gave in to Ike, when I kept quiet to avoid an argument, when I stayed with him despite longing to leave, that's what I was thinking about when I sang the song. The sadness of doing something that you don't want to do. Day in, day out. It's very emotional. Well, the men come in these places And the men are all the same 
Joined with co-host of Indigo Radio, Anna Milani. Hi, and um, hello. Um, and I asked Anna to join with me today as someone who has worked a lot in the anti-violence field. And something like Anna has really, um, like after Tina Turner's death and before, but I hadn't been watching interviews with her up until like really this week. And every interview that I'm watching, they're bringing up her situation of abuse and violence over and over again throughout the years and always kind of talking of it as like like almost like pity like oh it's so amazing that you made it this far considering where you came from 
And I was just wondering your thoughts, your take on that. Yeah, I have a couple different thoughts. One is that uh, it is definitely a question that gets asked, especially if it's a celebrity that ha- and a, someone a big name that has experienced violence like that and sort of in the narrative o- overcome trauma, I would say is sort of that narrative or overcome abuse and gone on to do all these wonderful things. I think that it's important to acknowledge that I think it was 16 years she was with him mm-hmm. and that uh, there is, yeah, she definitely experienced a lot of abuse from him and that she was succeeding throughout all of that abuse too. And I, the, the main thing that I would say around that people who have experienced abuse are often then defined by that abuse. And that having worked with a lot of survivors of intimate partner violence and dating violence is that many of them do not want to be just defined by that period in their life. And I think that's the biggest thing. The other thing that through my work that I've done is that it's it's also um, not useful to just lump all survivors and victims in the same uh, um, sort of the same spot like it's and I even actually intentionally say survivors and victims because they don't all want the same things their experiences have been different they may connect with it in different ways but I think we tend to kind of lump them all together Hmm. many people who have experienced abuse don't even want to identify as a survivor or a victim Mm -hmm. and yeah I mean it's definitely something that has uh, been pulled up a lot around Tina Turner And of course she herself has, uh, she did a documentary on her life. She's written a book on her life. And so she shares that experience as that has been part of her history and Mm -hmm. that there's so much more. The other thing I would say is that what's interesting when I was thinking about your question is that also having worked with survivors is that so many people never get asked about their experience and really do their experience or feel like a sense of relief that they can tell someone. So I think that that's why I say with the, when it's a celebrity, it becomes a bit different and people kind of cling to that story of like, oh, wow, she made it out of there and look at the success she had. And in our everyday lives though, we as a society often turn a blind eye to violence and we don't want to know about it. We don't want to know about our neighbor who has been like trying to leave an abusive situation. Or we don't know, we don't want to know about like the loud voices raised. It's like, quote, unquote, not our business. And so mm-hmm. I think that that's another thing that's interesting to me as someone who has interviewed uh, as part of the research that I did, I interviewed over two uh, women who had experienced uh, intimate partner violence in Vermont. And sometimes I get asked, oh, was that hard? Was it hard to get people to participate in that this? Or was it, was it hard to know how to ask questions? I mean, first of all, I, I have worked in the field for over 15 years, so I have been an advocate. And so people who have 
been in those situations can really trust me because they know that I've worked in this field. But the other thing and the more important thing I would say in my experience of talking to survivors is that they really want to tell their story because oftentimes no one does ask them mm. and that there's so much shame around it. And because, because of the stigma around it, because of these questions they get about, like, why didn't you leave? How could you be with someone like that? Um, and that there's a lot of misunderstanding. And so I think that's just the other thing I would add is that I think on like the day-to-day level of, of individuals, we often don't want to know at all about the violence that they have faced. And that sadly, many women's lives have been interrupted by, by some sort of violence. And that many survivors raise children throughout that. They protect children. They protect themselves. They go to jobs. They get up and go to school. Mm. So they're doing these things like, quote, succeeding, like Tina, of Mm. course, did. Um, But because she's in that, uh, in like the limelight, she, she then gets asked those questions. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So the one other thing I was going to say is that in the questions that get asked about Tina Turner and her experience with with violence Mm. is the invisibility of who is Ike Turner. And I think that Ike Turner has, is now known as Tina's abusive ex-husband and Mm. In one sense, of course, it's, I think that when you're, when Tina is getting interviewed, they're asking about her experience and that's very important. I think though, what it, what it leaves someone else is to vilify Ike Turner, which Mm. happens to most perpetrators of violence. And I think that um, it's really easy to, to really vilify that individual, but it's also important for us to ask like what happened for him that on the the very like minute interpersonal relationship he took, he used violence against her and, and Mm -hmm. pretty brutal violence. And, you know, Ike Turner died of a drug overdose in 2007. And Mm -hmm. to me, that speaks of, there was some sort of pain in his life. And he also, from his own account, he had written and he, talked about at the age of five, he witnessed his father beaten by a white man and left for dead. And Mm. his father actually later died of those injuries and his mother remarried and his stepfather was violent. And this is not to say that, okay, you've seen violence or you experienced violence and now you're going to be violent yourself. I think I just bring this up to say like, how do we humanize the perpetrator? And Tina Turner I've heard her speak about him and and talks about forgiveness because that's easier for her to do to move forward is to have forgiveness. Um, And it doesn't, what I, my point is not to say that someone who has experienced violence has to forgive or has to come to peace with the person that abused them. But I think as a society, we need to figure out how to humanize the perpetrator and really ask the questions of, what was their life about and what happened um, Mm. to understand the context of the interpersonal violence. Mm. That's a really good point, Anna. And I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of 
all of the narratives around Tina Turner that things are not historicized. So it's like, oh, she grew up poor. Um, I think it's in Tennessee. Um, and it's like, there's very little talked about what was happening in the 1930s mm. and with black women or black families in general in the South or anywhere in the U S you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think your point is well taken here too, that if we want to live in a world without violence, we have to understand the roots of the violence, not as like um, individualized also, but if what he went through um, many other people go through in the world. Right. Yeah. And so how do we understand? And also like, power is rarely ever talked about. And like, there was, um, I think patriarchy plays a big role in this story too. Yeah. That here is someone who brought, like, who was the one who was supposed to be famous, who like, you know, the narrative, as the narrative goes, like Tina was a high school student when she met him and he like introduced her to the field of music and really brought her quote unquote to her fame, which I don't think is true. Um, because I think she did that all on her own, but in his mind too, it's like now my, where like now my power that I thought I was owed from society is taken away. Mm. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to Indigo radio. We are a project of the spark teacher education Institute. If you missed this show or any of our other shows, make sure to catch all of our podcasts from the last five years on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. We're wrapping up our show today, but we wanted to share with you an educational praxis fundraiser that is raising money to build a new school building for Bapagrama in South India. Many of you know Janaki Natarajan, whose parents started this school in 1949 from the advice of Gandhi. And it's a school for the quote unquote, untouchable caste. And if you know anything about the caste system, it's a way to categorize and keep people in their uh, positions of labor. And so this is a group, uh, the poorest surrounding 20, 20 villages, and the school's primary for girls. And right now, the old building is falling apart with makeshift electricity, and every time it rains, there is leaking from the ceiling. So this makes the conditions quite dangerous, um, and school has to be held outside often. And therefore, the new building is underway with the help of donations. And it's not only about the building though, it's a new pathway that's being, being created right now to involve workshops on basic science, computer and vocational training, as well as a focus on collecting collective organizing for a better world. And um, if you've been following the news, Basic science programs are essential right now in India because they're facing similar threats of um, taking out, quote unquote, information 
from textbooks, including evolution and now the periodic table. So the children are in need of this support and education for their own independent and collective livelihoods. As they are now faced with working in international run factories that have sweatshop like conditions and other exploitative labor. So the money that you donate will go directly into the building and the projects to help fund opportunities for these young people to live dignified lives. You can find this fundraiser under Bapagrama School Building. It's B-A-P-A-G-R-A-M-A on the GoFundMe site. Thank you very much. We're going to go out today with my favorite Tina Turner song, The Best. Simply